If y'all would turn with me to Acts 17, and as you're turning there, I just want to say what a joy it is to, first of all, to be with you this morning, to have the opportunity to open up God's Word together, and, and what a joy it has been for me and my family to, to be with y'all for the last uh, seven months um, or so. We've been worshiping with you. Uh, for those of you we've gotten to know, it's been a great joy, and sorry we haven't gotten to know everyone as as well, but it has been a great joy for us and a, and a safe place and a great place for us to be and to worship in between my previous call at Decatur Presbyterian Church and where tomorrow, actually, the, the moving truck is being will be loaded up uh, for the beginning of our journey to uh, a church in Delaware, Glasgow a Church in Bear, Delaware, which we are very much looking forward uh, to being there, um, but it is a great joy to, to be here and have worshiped with, with y'all for the last uh, seven months, and, and we appreciate um, y'all's care for our family, and um, we especially, and too bad the Shipmans aren't here, but we especially uh, appreciate their friendship uh, to us. Um, as we dive into the passage this morning, we're, we're diving in in, the, in the, just the midst of, uh, of Acts, and we need just a little something to kind of help us know, where, where are we? And Paul is in the midst of his second missionary journey. Most recently, he has been to Thessalonica and then to Berea. And as happened many times on his missionary journey, as he takes the gospel, many people get excited about the gospel. And then there's also an undercurrent of people often who um, begin to get a little upset. And, and it's not uncommon for Paul to have to leave uh, almost in the night uh, to get out of there before things um, get out of hand. And, and that's precisely what's happened most recently in Berea. And, and Paul was sent off, and in fact, he... Sent off seemingly alone, and he has now arrived in our passage. He's arrived in Athens, seemingly by himself. His, his partners in the ministry at this point, Silas and Timothy, are, are still behind in Berea. And so we find Paul in Athens. Um, now, as we cover this, it's, it's a relatively large passage. We're not going to be able to go into all the details if you were to read in advance of, uh, of Acts 17. You know, if you, if you get all excited about us talking about Epicureans and Stoics and stuff... Uh, We'll be sorry to disappoint you. We're going to be looking at the big picture. You know, what, what is really going on here? How is it that Paul is taking the gospel to the Athenians? How does he approach them? It's a very different place that he's entering into. Um, how, how does he take the gospel to them? And then what does that maybe help teach us about how we should take the gospel um, to our community? So, so let's look at, at God's word now. We're going to look at Acts 17, starting at verse 16. This is God's word. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took hold of him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious for as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as, as though he needed anything, since he himself 
gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way towards him and find him. Yet he is actually not that far off from each one of us. In him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said. For we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And all of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some joined him and believed. Among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Let us pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for our opportunity to open your word this morning. We pray that you would be present, that you would speak to us. That, Father, you would move this, these words that we hear from our ears to our brain and down to the very depths of our heart. Holy Spirit, would you apply your word to our hearts this day? And we pray that we would see you and you only. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. One of the things that I like to do, often as I'm preparing sermons, as uh, I'm studying or whatnot, I like to go to coffee houses. And, and one of the things you notice if you go to a coffee house relatively regularly, you notice that there are a lot of regulars that go there, right? And, and a lot of these regulars, you know, some of them come every day, some of them come every third Thursday or something. Um, but they come, and, and many of them, you know, they have their regular seats and stuff. And, and I don't know how many times I've, I've been sitting in a coffee house, you know, I'm sitting in my seat, and somebody comes in, and they, they kind of give me a nasty look. And it's because I've taken their seat. Now, you know, I move all around when I'm at a coffee. You know, I sit in different seats every time, which probably irritates people even more. But, um, you know, there's this one couple that that multiple times I've happened to be sitting in their seat, and they come in, and they'll just turn towards you. They just kind of give you this stare. And, you know, it's just like this anger just comes over them, and then they march off to the register. And it wasn't too long ago that I, I was sitting in this coffee house and I saw this couple come in and I wasn't sitting in their seat, um, but somebody else was. And so I'm sitting there from the other side of the coffee house. You know, maybe this isn't good, but, you know, from the other side of the coffee house, I'm thinking, this will be, this will be interesting. So I just, I'm just watching. And I just kind of see their backs and you just see their, their shoulders just go down and they march off to the register. And oh, how often little things um, can get us upset. Um, can provoke us. As we look at our passage this morning, we're, we'll, we'll see the Apostle Paul provoked, but it's not at all about a little something. It's about a big something. Here in our passage, we see Paul walking the streets of Athens. And you'd expect, you know, Paul is a very schooled, he's a very learned man. You'd expect, you know, here he is for the first time in Athens, take in the sights of this incredible city, these philosophers he's heard about for years but what do we read in our passage? You know, I mean, you know, for us, you know, we'd go in. We'd have our camera around our neck, right? We'd, we'd want to be taken in the sights. But Paul, he enters in. What does he do? What do we see? Verse 16. But Paul, as he walked around the city, his spirit was provoked within him. As he looked around, he saw these idols. Over there was Jupiter. And there was Venus and Mercury. 
and of course their beloved Athena. And we could go on. All around the city, there's, there's literally idols. Beautifully crafted idols. And our passage says that Paul's spirit was provoked within him. Literally provoked to the point of wrath. Irritated to the point of anger. And we read that and we're wondering, is that okay? <laughs> you know, to be provoked in that way, to have that, that kind of anger, is, is that okay? Well, the interesting thing is, is that the Old Testament, even before Jesus' day, was translated into Greek. And when it was, this same word was used over and over again in the Old Testament. And usually it was used of God. Usually it was God that was irritated. It was usually Him that was provoked. Just to give you an example, I'll read two verses from Deuteronomy 32. Verse 16 says this, They stirred Him to jealousy with strange gods, with abominations. They provoked Him to anger. And then in verse 21 of chapter 32, they have made me jealous with what is no God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols. This is the way that God responds throughout the Old Testament over and over again as He sees idolatry. He responds by being stirred to jealousy, provoked to anger. And we, we kind of think about it and we're still thinking, well, is that okay? And you know, normally jealousy is not a good thing, right? If you're jealous of somebody because... They have the beauty and you don't. They have the ability at sports and you don't. Or they have the brains and you don't. Or whatever it is. You, you, we have no right to be jealous in, in those situations because nobody has a monopoly on those things, right? Nobody does. But the interesting thing is, as one commentator says, he says there is in one situation where it's okay to be jealous. And that's in the context of a marriage relationship. And this is what he says. If, on the other hand, a third party enters into a marriage the jealousy of the injured person who is being displaced is righteous because the intruder has no right to be there. There isn't room for a third, right? And so too it is with our relationship with God. There is no room, there is no place for a third party. And so when a third party, when an idol enters into the picture, God is rightly displeased, rightly jealous, rightly provoked. And so as we see the Apostle Paul walking the streets of Athens, he has grown in his knowledge and love of Jesus Christ. He has been transformed by the truth of the Gospel that Jesus Christ died for him, died for his sins, conquering sin and death, rising again from the dead. And Paul believes this. He's been transformed by it and he's grown in his relationship with Christ. And as a result, as he walks the city of Athens, he can't help but to react the way that God Himself would react. And so too it should be for us. So Paul, as he walks the streets, he's provoked because his heart is so close to God's heart. What is it that really provokes you? What is it that tends to provoke you kind of more on a daily basis? Is it those first world problems, if you will? You know, the kind of thing you know, where you're sitting in the left-hand turn lane and there's been like two or three green lights, and still for some reason your turn lane light hasn't tripped. You know what I'm talking about? You know, or you know, you're going to McDonald's, not because you like McDonald's, but because you need something fast, you need it quick, so you're going through the drive-thru, and inevitably you get behind the suburban that has at least 20 people inside it. They're all placing an order and they're doing it like three or four different transactions. Or your internet speed is slow. 
What is it that tends to provoke you? Are, are these the kind of things that, that tend more to provoke us? I'm giving myself away. But, but what are the things that kind of tend more to provoke you on a daily basis? Is it those things that is that those first world problems? Or is it when the Lord Jesus Christ, when his name is defamed? Is it when a third party enters into the relationship that only belongs between you and your Savior? Some years ago, there was a fabulous documentary on PBS called Merchants of Cool. It was very fascinating. It, um, it chronicled basically how, how media company, how um, marketing companies um, market to the youth of our culture. And, and one segment of it was called um, Cool Hunting. And literally what they do, they send out these, um, these folks to, to go and find the cool kids. And the whole intent of finding the cool kids, because usually these cool kids, they're just on the cusp of the next thing that's cool, the next big band, the next clothing style, the next whatever. You get the picture? And so they go, they, they'd find whoever these next cool kids are, and then they begin to market whatever that is, right? And market it to the youth, basically creating before them an idol, placing before them an idol for them to say, okay, I can be happy if I have this. And, and isn't that just terrible to think about? Horrible as we think about the idols in our culture. But, but there's something that's actually helpful in there. That while what they're going about and what they're trying to accomplish is bad, there's something helpful in the way that they go about doing it. Is, is they go out to try to understand, to know the youth that they're marketing to. You know what I mean? They, they try to know the culture of the people they're marketing to. And as Paul enters into Athens, his, the way he talks, what he has to say is very different than almost anywhere that he's gone before. He approaches it very differently because he's going into a very different context. And so let's look at that quickly. You know, we saw, you know, Paul is provoked, right? His spirit is provoked within him. So what does he do? Does he get out his, his, his milk carton, you know, and stand up on his milk crate and just start railing at him? How could you worship these idols? Does he pull out his billy club and just start going through the city, knocking them all down? Is that what he does? No, our passage, if you look in verse 17, what does he do? He reasons with them. He dialogues with them. He talks with them about it. Do you, do you see what I'm saying? He doesn't just come in setting up his milk crate and getting on it and letting them have it. He begins to dialogue with them. And what does he tell them about verse 18? He tells them about Jesus and the resurrection. Now what's interesting is as he goes to Athens... He's speaking into such a very different culture, and he understands that. You know, that you know, we're not going to talk about the Stoics and the Epicureans, but suffice it to say that that what they believed was so contrary to the Scripture and so opposite of the Scripture that what Paul was saying just seemed like gibberish to them. It just didn't compute. So what Paul does which is actually fabulous, is he, as we're going to see in a moment, he goes back and he starts at the very beginning. His intention as he goes into Athens, as he speaks to the people in Athens, is to, to, to start at the very foundation. He doesn't just try to build up a new house. He, he tries to rebuild the foundation. He tries to create for them and paint for them a picture of a world in which the gospel could really be true. In fact, the true world in which the gospel really is true. See, Paul, as he walked the street of Athens, yes, he was provoked by the idols. But he also saw the incredible spiritual decay of the city that he was in. As he saw a people 
who are without hope. And he seeks to go to them and bring to them hope, creating for them a world in which the gospel really could be true. And how does he do this? How does he start? Look at verse 22. He starts out with a place of common ground. As I said, he doesn't get out, you know, he doesn't just get out his billy club and start beating up the, the idols. He says, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you're very religious. This is a compliment to them. I mean, today, if you call somebody religious, it may not be a compliment. Maybe you could call them spiritual and that would be a compliment or something. But in this day, I mean, they're thinking, oh, yeah, we're pretty religious. You've, you've seen all of our gods, right? Uh, you, yeah, we, we're very religious. And so he compliments them. He tries to find a, a place of common ground to begin. And then in verse 23, For as I passed along and I observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. And we hear that, and that, that just sounds kind of funny, doesn't it? To an unknown God? Why, why would you have an altar set up to an unknown God? And, and to be honest, we don't know exactly why this is, but most likely it's, you know, of course they worship this great pantheon of gods, tons of gods. And so they want to be very careful. You know, inevitably there's a God that they've left out somewhere. And so they need to create an a, a altar. They need to create a place um, for this God that they've forgotten and somehow left out because they surely don't want to anger him, right? And so Paul uses this as an entry point to share with them the good news of Jesus Christ. He uses this as an entry point to say, you know this God, this unknown God? Let me tell you about him. Let me tell you about how he is more incredible than you, than any of these gods that you could ever imagine. To oversimplify things, to very oversimplify things, the people of Athens would have been in kind of two camps. One would have been they thought that the gods were way out, you know, past Pluto or whatever the current farthest planet is. I guess Pluto is not it anymore. But that, that, that way, out, way out there um, and just kind of far removed from the world. Or there was those who were in the camp that God is just in everything. You know, we think of pantheism, if you've heard that word before. Just, just God is in everything. And so those were the two camps. But, but, but. Paul comes and he presents before them a God so radically different. Let's just very quickly look at what he has to to say about this God. This is the God, verse 24, who made the world and everything in it. And he's the Lord. He, He rules over everything. There's nothing outside of his control. And you know what? This God, this God in, in verse 24, he, you can't stick him in a temple. You know, and where is he? He's, he's in Athens. And what do they, of course, have in, in Athens but the Parthenon? And what is the Parthenon but a temple for? Athena. And he's saying, this God is so incredible. You, you can't make a temple. You, 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 you can't contain him. You can't. It's just not possible. This God is so big. He is so mighty. He doesn't need anything from human hands. But then he begins also to talk about the other side of the story, that yes, this is a God who is high and lifted up. He's so far above any gods that are out past Pluto. But he's also a God who has, who has come near, who is actually yet not that far away from us as we see in verse 27. Who, who elsewhere, he, he talks about who has given life and breath and everything in verse 25. This is a God he's trying to paint for them, a God unlike any of the rest in their pantheon. Their gods were limited in one way or another, each one of them in its own way. This God, the one true God, 
he's trying to tell them about has no limits. And then he kind of goes to meddling a little bit. If you look in verse 30. The time of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Commands all people everywhere to repent. You know, what he's getting at here, I think, you know, I mean, Athens, of course, this hot spot of philosophy. And what of all the philosophies of the world, what, what's, what have they tried to do? What have they tried to get at? But, but by and large, tried to figure out, okay, to make sense of this world and why all is not good. Okay? Why is all not good? And Paul's telling them why all is not good. All is not good because you are not in right relationship with the one true God. That's why all is not good. And he concludes his speech by saying, if you want to know if all this is really true, if you want to know how how you can know if all this is really true, Jesus Christ himself, God himself, came down to earth. Died the death that we all deserve to die. Right? After having lived a life that we all should have lived. And then, and this is Paul's stopping place, he rose from the dead. You want to know how you can know this is true? Because he is risen. And in that day, these people in Athens, they could have actually made a journey over to Jerusalem and they could have met contemporaries who actually saw the risen Jesus. You want to know how you can know? Now, we'll talk in just a moment about the response. But I just want to sit here for just a second, just thinking about the way that Paul spoke to the Athenians. He's so sensitive and he's so winsome in the way that he goes about speaking to them. So incredibly winsome. Paul sees a city that is without hope. He sees a city full of idols. And he is provoked, right? But he doesn't get out his dilly club. He shares the good news of the gospel with them. The good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ with them. Because, you see, Paul knew that if he could just get out the dilly club and started knocking down their idols, they would just rebuild them once he was gone. He knew that you can't just bust up an idol. You have to replace it with something better. And that's precisely what he's trying to do with the Athenians. Now I want us to think about ourselves for a minute. First of all, do you just get upset? Now, now let's get past the whole you know, McDonald's and and somebody taking your seat at the coffee shop. I think we do get provoked by things that should provoke us, by the idolatry in our culture and the world that we live in. Um, you know, you, you, you watch the evening news or you, you watch your Facebook or Twitter streams, and sometimes things provoke you about the way things are going in this world, right? Sometimes you see things that begin to make your, your blood kind of pump, right? Do, do you just get provoked? Do you just get provoked about these things? And then, if you aren't just getting provoked, what do you do? Do you just get out your billy club and try to start smashing them? Or do you try to approach this world with the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Which do you do? Do you just get provoked? Or do you begin to do something about it? And secondly, do you Do you just get provoked about that big stuff that you see in your Facebook or Twitter feed? 
you just get provoked about that stuff that's in the newspaper on the national news? Is that just the stuff that really gets your blood pumping? Or do you get just as and even more provoked about the stuff that's much closer to home? About the idols that you still struggle with? And here's what I mean by this. Just this summer there was an article in the, the, the New York Times, and the title of it was Home Ownership, the Key to Happiness, question mark. And just read just a, a brief excerpt. Experts in happiness, an increasingly popular field focused on the scientific understanding of emotional well-being. It's crazy that they're scientists who study just happiness, but anyway. Um, they, they say that people are happier when they spend money on experiences instead of material goods. This whole article goes on, you know, to talk about, you know, are we happy? You know, everybody thinks, you know, we'll be happy if we can finally get that perfect house, right? Um, or are they more happy about experience, you know, or is it the experiences, you know, I don't know, going to Disney World with your family or something, you know, for some that would be horrible, but for others that would be fun. Anyway, um, you know, which is it that, um, which is it that brings true happiness? Here's my question for you. Does hearing that, does that begin to provoke you as much as whatever the most recent Supreme Court decision or whatever is? You know, it should. Because it's another sign, you know, that the way that our world is running after happiness in all the wrong places. And the fact that you and I participate in that too. That, you know, we all, we dream of that bigger, better house, that, that better job, that, that greater salary, those perfect kids, whatever it is, right? We all think, if, if I can have that, I'll just finally be happy. You know, maybe particularly for the kids, you know, your Christmas was recently, right? And you, you're thinking, okay, if I just get this on, this on my Christmas list, then I'm going to be happy, Right? It's going to bring true happiness. And, and now, you know, uh, however long we are past Christmas, uh, almost a month and a half, you know, now those things that were going to bring true happiness are kind of wearing off. They still may be fun, but you need something else now, right? D- d- does that provoke you as much? It should. And to be quite honest, as you think about taking the gospel to your neighbor, to your coworker, to your friends, you know... <laughs> Chances are they're struggling with the same idols that have captured your heart, whether it's the idol of happiness or, or something else. You, you can fill in the blank. But, but just use uh, happiness as, a, as an illustration there. You know, they're, they're probably struggling more with trying to seek happiness in all the wrong places, thinking that if they have X, Y, and Z, then finally they're going to have true happiness. And you know what? You can share with them the one thing that can truly bring happiness to them, the one thing that never fails, that never gives up. You have the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What is it that really provokes our hearts? I think it's unfortunate that sometimes we get more provoked about things that are distant from us, those idols that other people struggle with, than the idols that are much closer to home. No doubt, those are bad. Those are idols that need to be fought as well. But how do we fight them? Not with billy clubs with the good news of the gospel. Now, very quickly, look at the response that Paul gets. Now, some mocked him, right? Some began to make fun of him. Some, as as happened earlier in the passage, back towards the beginning, they they called him a babbler. You know, what was this crazy talk you're spouting? I mean, they mocked him. And remember, this is the Apostle Paul. He was a good preacher. I would assume. Certainly far better than what you're listening to now. You know, and yet some mocked him. And then there were were some others who, what did they say? They 
they said, oh, well, um, we will hear you again about this. Do you see Paul's response in verse 33? So Paul went out from their midst. They said, we'll hear some more about this. And what did Paul do? He left. What does that tell you about these people? Probably. That maybe they, they weren't really that interested. They were just tickling his ears, if you will. They were... There were those people, you know, who maybe you're, you share the gospel with and you've been sharing the gospel with for five or ten years and they just still slightly nod their head. You know, there, there's those people too. But, do you see verse 34? Do you see it? Some men joined him and believed. On that day, there were idols that were demolished. Demolished not with billy clubs, but with the good news of the gospel. Do you see that? Do you understand that? You know, we, we should expect similar responses as we go to share the gospel. We should expect that at times we'll be mocked, as Paul was. We can expect that sometimes there'll be people who will kindly listen and nod their head or at least pretend to listen. But we should also expect at times idols will be demolished by the good news of the gospel. We should have that expectation. Now here's another thing I think that's just helpful to be reminded of. You know this is probably about the worst results Paul gets in his missionary journeys, if you will, as far as it seems, numbers of converts and stuff. It doesn't seem like too many people come to saving faith. In Athens. And so one could be disappointed, I guess, by that. But some do believe. But, you know, we, you know, we talked a little bit earlier about, you know, the national news and how that sometimes gets us blood boiling. How, you know, we, we talk about how our nation's falling apart and, and we could get all upset about those types of things, right? Do you know that the city of Athens was far worse in that day than the U.S. is today? I hope you know and understand that. And do you know what happens within the course of 100 to 200 years after Paul's out of Athens, after he's begun to plant these seeds? It is overswept by the gospel. So let us never, ever limit the power of the gospel to transform lives, to transform cultures, to just sweep across. And we should be constantly praying that that kind of revival might take place. So as, as we close up, I want us to begin to see. You know, Paul walked through the city of Athens. And as he walked through, he saw that he was just surrounded by idols. They were everywhere. He could physically, literally see idols. We need to begin to see them. See the big ones, yes, the big ones that, that on the national news or whatever. We, we need to see the big ones. But we need to see the other ones that are just as big but are much closer to home. The ones that might be on those billboards about that new home or whatever, you know, whatever it is. We need to see the idolatry in this, that surrounds us. And how even though we're in the South and even though we're in Alabama, and even though we're, there are lots of believers around here, there are tons of people right here in Huntsville who are living without hope. 
because this is a city full of idols. And we so easily are seduced by them as well, aren't we? But I just want to remind you that as we seek to take the gospel out of here to our neighbors, to our coworkers, wherever it may be, as we seek to demolish idols, as we find ourselves provoked by them, let us not do it with billy clubs. Let us do it with the good news of the gospel. If we pull out our billy clubs, they're just going to build them right back up. We've got to replace them with the only thing, the only thing that can replace them, the thing that never fails, that is always true. And that is Jesus Christ. He's the only thing that can go in the go in its place. So as we go out, not with billy clubs, with the good news of the gospel, do you believe it? I pray I do as well. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for the good news of the gospel with the power to transform lives, the power to demolish idols, wherever they may be. Oh, Father, would you convict us? Would you help us to see the idols which surround us? The idols that we continue to struggle with, the idols that we know that our neighbors struggle with. Might you give us wisdom, sensitivity, and the winsomeness of Paul to take to this world, to our neighbors, to our friends, the good news of the gospel, the only thing that can truly demolish idols. Holy Spirit, we pray you would help us. We can't do this on our own. But we pray that you would use us as your ambassadors into this world. We pray this in our Savior's name.